Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vista. It is wonderful to see you here today. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. Um, before we jump in, quick reminder. Now, if you're getting a, a sip of something, of course, that's totally fine. But besides that, try to keep your mask on as much as possible. Uh, we've been able to meet for a number of months now with the blessing of our health district and done so very responsibly, which is great. We're very, very proud of it. And we just want to make sure that we're able to continue to do so for the duration, however long that may or may not be. And so it'd be really, really helpful. Um, as a reminder, we are today in the first leg of our 15-week-long journey through the story of Jesus is told in the Gospel of Luke. Call the series Jesus According to Luke. And we're calling part one of this journey Origins because the first part of Luke is spent unpacking Jesus' origins. You know, who is he? Where's he from? Who are his parents? What's his hometown? And we started off the series inviting you to come spend the next few months getting lost in Jesus' story with us because we can all be tempted to get a little too absorbed with our own stories sometimes, can't we? I know I can. I mean, it's easy for us to think that the world literally revolves around us because from where you're sitting, it, it literally does, right? People are sitting where? To your right and to your left and in front of you and behind you. And so because of that, it's easy for us to think the world revolves around us and get caught asking ourselves these understandable but kind of self-absorbed questions, you know, questions like, well, how is Jesus relevant to my life? You ever asked that question before? I've asked that question before. As if the sole reason that Jesus exists is to be relevant to your life. And so we said that maybe instead of sitting around wondering whether or not Jesus is relevant to your life, maybe you want to make sure that your life is relevant to Jesus' life, right? A little shift in perspective there. So we'll pick up the story uh, back in chapter 4. Jesus, he's been baptized in the Jordan River, right? This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased in him. He's been tried and tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Dave did a great job with that last week. And so now today, Jesus is finally kind of set loose on the world proper. We'll be in Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. It'll be up here on the screen uh, if you'd like to read along there. We've also got some Bibles in the back if you'd like one. Luke 4, starting in verse 14. Now, Jesus, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, right? He's come out of his temptation. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues. And he was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. And the book or scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to him, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's boy? Like, well, we knew this kid, right? He grew up here. This is Joseph's kid. And he said to them, well, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath 
in the house of in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Things have escalated very quickly. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Cool story. Luke 4, verse 14 through 30. So this is another story uh, about another big first in Jesus' life. Right? He comes roaring out of his temptation and trial in the wilderness. He's, he's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's teaching with this authority that nobody has ever seen or heard before. And news of his wonders is spreading like wildfire in the area. And after about a year of this, we learned that timetable from John's gospel. This goes on for about a year in Galilee. He finally returns to his hometown, Nazareth, right? So he's born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. And returning to your hometown can be kind of... Um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for here? Interesting, maybe. It's always interesting when you go back to your hometown, especially as an adult. And so he rolls into his hometown for the first time in a very long time. He's a bit of a local celebrity at this point because word of his wonders has gotten around. Very first thing that he does when he gets to town is he goes to the synagogue in town, as was his custom. That's what Luke says, as was his custom. And we don't have time to linger here because we, we got some stuff to cover today. But we do need to pause just long enough to note right, that Jesus, right, second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, creator of all that is seen and unseen, that Jesus made a habit of going to church as was his custom. That's what Luke says. And sometimes people ask me, they're like, Austin, you know, I mean, you're, like, you're a laid back guy. You know, you're laid back. This is a laid back church. Do that. Do I really need to go to church? I mean, do I really need to go to weekly communal worship? Can I just do my own thing? Is it that big of a deal? It's a very common question, especially in modern culture, because we've got lots and lots more people who would call themselves kind of, you know, like spiritual but not religious. And for a very long time, I would have considered myself one of those people. You know, I love God. I love Jesus. I follow Jesus. But I just kind of want to do my own thing. And so is it really that big of a deal? And so I get the sentiment. I really do. I'm one of you. I get the sentiment. I do. But I just don't think that Jesus would have had a lot of patience for it. I don't. I don't think that Jesus would have called himself spiritual but not religious because of Jesus, right? If Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, maker of all that is seen and unseen, if Jesus made a habit of going to church, then, you know, do you need me to connect those dots for you, you know? Now, now, just to be clear, I, I'm not saying that you're like a terrible person, you know, if you don't go to weekly communion worship, that Jesus is going to get you and burn you in hell forever. Blah. I'm not saying that. I would never say that. All I'm saying is that if you don't make a habit of attending weekly communal worship, then, you know, apparently you think you're better than JC. That's all I'm saying. Probably for no one in the room, maybe for some people on the live stream, that's for you. I'm just saying, we'll leave that there and we've got to move forward. So Jesus goes to church or synagogue as was his custom. And worship in the synagogue would have followed this certain order. First off, they would have started with the, uh, the liturgical prayers, probably out of the book of Psalms. That's why we start a lot of our services with Psalms. Next up, there would have been a reading from the Torah, one of the first five books of the Bible. And then after that, there would have been this additional reading called the Haftarah reading. Right? And in this Haftarah reading, a member of the congregation would get up, read a text, and then he'd offer kind of this low-key 
commentary on it, like a really low-key sermon of sorts. And so on this particular day, Jesus is selected to do the Haftarah reading. So we're told that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. Now, your translation might say book, but they didn't have books back then, right? You can just turn to Isaiah 6. They had scrolls. So he gets this scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he scrolls until he finds this one particular passage he's looking for, Isaiah 61. That's a lot of chapters to scroll through. Can you imagine that? He's just scrolling, like five minutes of scroll and scrolling. The paper's piled up all around him, probably up to his eyeballs, and he finally gets there to Isaiah 61. He pauses 10 minutes later. Everybody's listening, you know. And what does he say? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And hopefully this text sounds a little bit familiar to you because I I literally preached a sermon on it like four weeks ago, right? We're in our Advent series. We said that Isaiah the prophet proclaims that God's Messiah is going to come. And what's he going to do? He's going to pour out God's joyful justice all over creation. What's that going to look like? Enslaved people will be set free. Hopelessly indebted people, economically indebted people will be released from their debts. Broken people will be comforted. Tired people will be refreshed. And sad people will be made joyful. And so Jesus, okay, he reads Isaiah 61. This text loaded with messianic promises and aspirations. And he rolls that scroll back up. Five more minutes, right? All 61 chapters. He rolls that scroll back up. Ten minutes later, he's finished. And the eyes of everybody are fixed on him. And what does he say? He says, today, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine being one of those people sitting in that packed synagogue in Nazareth that day? Right? For, for, for a year, you've been hearing the rumors about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, about his wonders, about his power. And then he rolls up into your synagogue, picks out one of the most electric prophecies in all of Scripture, finishes it, and he says what? He says, today, today, all this stuff that I just said, all this stuff that was prophesied through Isaiah, this life-changing, history-altering, world-changing stuff, this stuff is happening today, not tomorrow, today. It's all going down today in your hearing Today it's happening. Now, get a little show of hands here, a little bit of participation, okay? Anybody in the room this morning ever struggle a little bit with procrastination? Anybody? Some of you need to think about it for a little while, maybe get back to me on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we... We all struggle with procrastination, right? If you're a person in the room who struggles with it, you're in good company because from time immemorial, procrastination has been one of those nagging human problems. For as Mark Twain is alleged to have said, never put off till tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow. <laughs> this is a good like life motto for some of you. Get that tatted right across here, maybe on your forearm. For example, um, this is a picture of a suitcase. I'm going to get in some trouble for this, but it needs to be done. This is a picture of my wife's suitcase. Uh, yeah, suitcase she packed when we visited family over the holidays. So for the last six weeks, it's been sitting there, unpacked, filled with dirty clothes. Six weeks. And those of you who know me, a lot of you, you know me, you know that I hate stuff like this. Because there are two kinds of people in this world, okay? They're responsible, good people. Do the Lord's will. Unpack a bag as soon as they get home from a trip. And then there are other people who don't unpack a bag 
until they are forced to do so because what? Because they're finally packing for another trip and they finally need the bag and these people should probably spend some time in prison because this is a crime of procrastination. You gotta prosecute procrastinators. I am very law and order on this, okay? Y'all, I have even tried taking this suitcase and putting it in places where I think my wife will be forced to unpack it. I put it under the covers on her side of the bed one time. <laughs> under the covers. And, and she did take the clothes out and then she piled them under the covers on my side of the bed. I come home late one night, you know, and I'm like feeling for the bed and I feel something on my side of the bed and I'm like, hmm, somebody's on my side of the bed. Dirty clothes, right? So we all struggle with procrastination and, and of course, to be fair, to my beloved wife and all other unpacking procrastinators out there, okay, we all struggle with procrastination. We just procrastinate different things, right? Like I, for example, I unpack a bag the moment I get home as the Lord would will it, um, but I can put off certain household tasks for years, y'all, for years. We've been in our current house for four years, and we still do not have curtains up in the dining room. Probably never will. I had a very traumatic experience hanging curtains for my wife when she was in college. I put a bunch of holes in the wall. Curtains kept falling down. She finally enlisted the help of another guy who was a bit of a competitor. So it's a very sensitive subject for me. Uh, at least once a week, my wife will come in. She's usually on Saturdays. Weird how it happens. And she'll go, like, hey. How about, we, how about we finish out the office or maybe hang those new pictures of the kids on the wall? And I'm no dummy. I know how to answer that. I go, that sounds great. And then she'll go, well, how about today? And I'll go, today? My voice right? Today? Like, today? Today? Like, you mean like now today? And then this weird thing happens. My IQ drops like 200 points. And I'm like, I don't know how to use the hammer and the nails, and it's, it's 64 outside. You don't want to hang things on the wall when it's 64. I'd explain it, but you're a girl. Um, so yeah, we all struggle with procrastination in our own ways, and believe it or not, the biggest reason for it is not laziness. It's actually not. No, the biggest reason for procrastination is that we struggle managing the negative emotions that are associated with certain tasks. That's what the psychologists are telling us. Because as it turns out, we mainly procrastinate that we can't manage these negative things that happen when we do certain things. So we procrastinate certain tasks to put off the bad vibes. Sound right? Sounds right to me. So if you've ever found yourself, I don't know, reorganizing your cooking spices for the hundredth time instead of unpacking your suitcase. Or showing through Instagram or Facebook, you know, because there might be something I need to like on here. Instead of calling your mama or your daddy, that's why. It's not that you're lazy, it's that you can't handle the bad vibes. All that to say, what our chronic struggle with procrastination reveals is that left to our own devices, all of us tend to prioritize short-term happiness over long-term flourishing. Basically, all of us prioritize short-term happiness over long-term flourishing. And that brings us back to Jesus standing in this packed synagogue in Nazareth that day. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, the very first word that Jesus speaks for himself in public is today. First word he speaks for himself in public. He picks up the scroll from this prophet Isaiah. He goes to Isaiah 61. He reads it. What does he say? He says, today, all this stuff that Isaiah just said, it is going down today, not tomorrow, not the day after tomorrow, not someday, not one day, not when, and if you feel like it, it is all going down today, and you are responsible for acting on it today. Today's the day. Now, commenting on this passage, Gerhard Lofink, he suggests that it reveals the struggle that all of us have accepting what he calls the todayness of the gospel. 
right? the todayness of the gospel. Listen to this. This is good. He says, it's not only in Nazareth that the todayness of the gospel was not accepted. No, it, it continues throughout history. Apparently, it makes people uncomfortable to have God appear concretely in their lives. Puts all their desires and favorite ideas in danger and their ideas about time as well. It can't be today because in that case, we would have to change our lives today. So we prefer to delay God's salvation to some future time because there it can rest securely packed, hygienic, and harmless. Think he's on to something here? I think he's on to something here. Because almost everybody I have ever met plans on getting their life together someday. And I've met so many people over the years who plan on getting serious about their faith tomorrow. Because we really like this idea of God coming to us at some vague, indefinite point in the future. Right? That's a comforting idea. It makes us feel good. Someday, one day, God's going to come. He's going to make everything right someday. But today, right, today, like today, today, that is a little too soon for me. Maybe not today, because if it's today, then that means my life can't continue as it is today. Because if it's today, then that means that obedience is required today, right? I mean, can you imagine how uncomfortable it must have been to have Jesus sitting in front of you in that synagogue that day? And he goes, hey, all this stuff, today's the day. Like, are you in or are you out? Are you in or are you out? Are you in or are you out? It would have been terrifying. You would have been shaking in your sandals. Are you kidding me? And yet, Scripture relentlessly affirms that you and me, ooh, we are, in fact, in the exact same spot as all those people sitting in that packed synagogue in Nazareth that day. Because the day of God's call upon you is always today, and it is never tomorrow. Right, I'm going to say that again. The day of God's call upon you is always today, and it is never tomorrow. A ton of different places we can look at in Scripture. We're just going to look at one. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 15. It says, Take care, brothers and sisters, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Because it said, today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So <clears throat> there's this long-standing kind of debate, conversation in, in Christian faith. Where we try to understand the best way to understand Jesus' proclamation, Jesus' message, that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? It's in all the gospels. It's really the first thing that Jesus says in all the gospels, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, you know, does that mean that the kingdom of God is like here, right now, at hand? Or does it mean it's like almost here? Because if it's here, then why are things not completely the way God wants them to be? But if it's almost here, then for how long is it going to be almost here? Because it's been a couple thousand years, and can something be almost here for a couple thousand years, right? And so as the church has tried to make sense of this, they've come up with this idea, we've come up with this concept of the already and not yet nature of the kingdom. Really simple idea. What it means is that there's this sense in which the kingdom is already here right now, right? You've got the Spirit of God in you. The Spirit of God is here in us. We've got the church. The kingdom is already here in a certain sense. But then it's also like not quite here, 
in a certain sense. People still sin, suffer, and die. And it's a very helpful biblical idea. But here's where it can get a little bit misunderstood. I think that most of us think that we want God to, like, bring the kingdom right now, but God wants to wait a little bit, right? I think that we think we're like, God, bring the kingdom today. We're ready. Send Jesus back. And God's like, nah, not yet. You know, I got some stocks I don't want to sell low on yet. A few other things I'd, I'd like to do. That's the way we tend to think about it. We're like, God, today, and God's like, no, not yet. But the picture that Scripture paints is basically the exact opposite of this. Okay? In other words, it's not that we're the ones who are like, God, today is the day. Send Jesus. We're ready. Come bring your kingdom on earth that it is in heaven. God's like, no, not yet. But rather, God is the one who's like, hey, today is the day. Are you ready? This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The captives are going to be set free and dead people are going to be released. Today's the day. Are you ready? Are you in or are you out? And we're the ones going, nah, not yet. Today is not great for me. I've got a few other things I'd like to get done, you know. Maybe, maybe tomorrow, maybe someday, not the next day. In other words, it's not that God's holding back from us. No, 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 no. It's that we are holding back from God. God's not holding the kingdom back from us. We are holding back from God. Right? Because the day of God's call upon you is always today. And it is never, ever tomorrow. Now, I don't know what God's calling you is today. You're going to have to figure that piece out for yourself. Now, maybe, you've, maybe you've neglected your family because you've been absorbed with your career, with your hobbies, been there. Or maybe you've neglected the hurting people around you in your community because you've been absorbed with your family. I've seen that one too. Maybe, maybe man, your heart is just filled with spite and anger and rage. There's a lot of that going around right now. Bad case of it. So you just want to reach out and hurt people because you feel so much hurt and pain and frustration. Maybe you're, you're playing the upward mobility game, you know, thinking that a little bit more status and a few less pounds will fix everything that's broken in your life. And maybe you got an addiction that you hate. You hate it. But you just don't really think you can live without it because it's been a long time. Maybe, maybe... Maybe you never pray or tell people about Jesus. I have struggled with all those things at some point, and many of them at the exact same time. I shared, I think it's a couple years ago now, that I dealt with a terrible addiction to pornography for well over 10 years, man. Middle school, high school, all throughout college I struggled with it, and I knew that God was calling me out of it. And I wanted out of it. I did but never today, you know what I mean? Never today. And it wasn't until I accepted that today, not tomorrow, not Sunday, not one day, that today was the day that I began a journey towards freedom and obedience. And, and understand now, that freedom and obedience, it, it doesn't come all at once. It's not the way it works. It's a long journey. It doesn't come all at once, but it does come today. You with me here? Because the kingdom of God does not come into our lives all at once but it does come today or not at all. You follow me on this? At some point, today's gotta be the day, man. And if it's never today, then it's never gonna happen. But most importantly, and I wanna end with this, most importantly, 
the todayness of Jesus' gospel. Hey, today's the day this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. You're responsible for acting on it today. The todayness of Jesus' gospel, y'all, it's not some moralizing, legalistic threat. If you don't turn today and you die in a car wreck on the way home, then Jesus is going to torch you with a flamethrower for all eternity. Evangelism by terrorism. It's not how Jesus rolled. It's not how we do things here. No, the todayness of the gospel is first and foremost the kindest happiest, most joyful invitation that you are ever going to receive. Because God's throwing a party for sinners, right? God's throwing a party for sinners. And God's setting captives free. And God is liberating hopelessly indebted people. And God is making sad people happy, refreshing, tired people. And you can be a part of it today. Not tomorrow, not someday, not one day today because the day of God's call upon you is always today and it is never tomorrow. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of today. I'm grateful to be here with my friends this morning, some new friends, some old friends. And we just pause and um, God, we confess that we love the idea of you coming and making everything right and fixing the world but not today. Because if it's today, God, then fixing the world is going to mean fixing some things in our hearts. And while we want that deep down, I think, we're also hesitant because we realize that's going to mean some things are going to have to change in our lives. It's going to mean we can't hide behind the lies and the hate and the blame anymore. We have to own our part in creation's pain. And that's a tough thing to do. And so I pray for all my friends in these moments, God, that you would work on our hearts. You would get us to that place where, you know, everything's not going to happen all at once today. But it can begin today. And if it doesn't begin today at some point, it'll never happen. So I ask that you would move right now in our hearts today because you want to do something today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.